The following is a recording of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, visit gpts.edu. Good morning. It's wonderful to be back at Greenville Seminary. I want to give a welcome, particularly to the new students. Raise your hand if you're a, for a new incoming student. There's a bunch of you, right? Welcome to Greenville. Nice to have you here. I hope you're having a very rich, I know you are, beginning of your seminary experience here at Greenville Seminary. Am I not okay? You don't need that? Okay. Okay. Uh, the uh, a couple of things I want to say is I've been looking for this book for 20 years. I have this is uh, I just found it in a little bookstore. Thomas Houston's The Adoption of Son, a Son's a Practical and Experimental Treatise. I've got a mimeograph copy someone gave me that I read 20 years ago, and it's finally in print. So if you don't buy this, you're missing out. Um, also, normally I like to stay afterwards, and uh, I have to run today. Uh, please forgive me for that. I've got to meet a church member at 12:30. So uh, it's a joy to be here. Open your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading at verse 16, but I'm going to preach verse 19. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, beginning at verse 16 of 2 Peter chapter 1. The apostle writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully... I'll read it the way I believe it is. We have the prophetic word more sure to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Father, how we love your word, because from it we have received life. And it is not merely a record of Peter's ancient thoughts, but you are speaking to us today. Bless these men and women as a particularly preparer to serve you, and uh, may you use today's preaching of your word to form godly convictions. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. When we read of Peter's experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he saw Jesus visibly displayed in glory, bestowed, it's actually his end times glory, that's the point he's making. Jesus is bestowed with his eschatological glory on the Mount. There is a tendency, I think, to say, you know, if only I had experiences like that, then maybe I too could have a faith like the apostles. Well, Peter is defending his apostolic teaching concerning Jesus Christ. And I want to point out that he himself rejects that kind of thinking, that if only you'd had that experience, you too could have a strong faith. He, he began the letter by describing believers today, this is verse 1 of chapter 1, as those who have obtained a faith of equal standing to ours, ours being the apostles. He continues in verse 19 to argue that our faith also stands on authority equally as valid as the faith of the apostles. And we have the prophetic word more sure. Well, Peter has denied the charge. I wanted to read those verses, but the charge against him is that he's teaching fables, particularly with respect to the second coming of Jesus, that he's making things up. And he points out, well, no, actually, I was there. 
I'm actually, an, I'm giving you an eyewitness report. I was present on the Mount of Transfiguration, so I'm not making this up. And yet in the verse I'm preaching today, he notes that his ultimate source of authority lies not even in his own remarkable experiences as an apostle, but rather the authority that he is going to rest upon is the word of God written in the Bible. Imagine if you could have had a a vision of Jesus, Peter saying, like I did. Such an experience, however, would not provide the true ground of your faith in Jesus Christ. Your faith, like that of the apostles, rests on the word of God. Get down to chapter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. He's going to talk about the inspiration of the Holy uh, Scriptures. Men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God as they were carried along in the Holy Spirit. But verse 9 makes a devastating statement about the authority of the Word of God. And I want to mention three things today. First, that God's Word is sure. Second, that God's Word is sufficient. And third, that God's Word is enduring. God's word is sure, sufficient, and enduring. Now, when he speaks of the prophetic word, he refers to the written word of God in Holy Scripture, given first through the the prophets, but then after Christ came through his apostles. And I think it's very suggestive, more than suggestive. When he joins the prophetic word to his witness as an apostle, by the way, he is confirming the unity of the whole Bible. Someone comes to you and says, well, there's a big fundamental difference between the Old Testament and the New, not according to Peter. It's the prophetic word is also carried on in his ministry. We have the prophetic word made sure, more sure. Now, commentators are going to uh, debate the specific point that he's making here. Uh, Look at verse 19. I'm reading from the ESV. It says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Now, that is the majority view today on this verse, that what Peter is saying is that what he saw and heard on the Bible confirms the veracity of the Bible. That is the view that it makes its way into the New American Standard. It makes its way into the uh, ESV. So what he's saying, according to that view, is that uh, I had this, we have these, these eyewitness accounts of the apostles. We've, I had this experience of seeing his end-time glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, and that is a confirmation of the Bible. You should believe the Bible because it has been confirmed in this experience. That's the majority view today. The ESV says the prophetic word is more fully confirmed. It's validated by the events to which Peter and the other apostles were eyewitnesses. The NASV says, we have the prophetic word made more sure. Now, when you read the literature on this verse, and this this is, by the way, this is so typical of the academics, of the scholars. This is why you need a quality education, so you don't just read and imbibe it without thinking it through. Because what you will find, and you go ahead and look it up, you will find in over and over the commentators, the reason for that view goes something like this. I'm quoting Thomas Schreiner. It's unthinkable that Peter would have said the opposite. Anytime some academic scholar tells you that what the text actually says is unthinkable, pay attention. These are good guys, but the argument is made that it's unthinkable that he could be saying, no, it is the Bible that validates our experience as apostles. And so what they're saying is, no, it's our experience that validates the veracity of the Bible, Uh, but that is not what it actually says. Thomas Schreiner says, we cannot imagine Peter would place anything on a higher ground 
than the voice of God speaking audibly and the vision of Christ glorified on the mouth mount. It is difficult to believe that Peter would say the other view. And yet there are serious problems with the view that finds its way into the ESV, which I'm generally positive about. Uh, one problem is that the meaning of the Greek word babaios, translated here more fully confirmed or made sure, normally is not that meaning. Normally it means dependable, reliable, trustworthy. And so Peter's idea is not that the Bible writings are confirmed, but that they are themselves, the prophetic word, the written word of God, is itself characterized by reliability, by trustworthiness. Now, he then adds a suffix, teron, which is a comparative. And so what he's saying is that scripture is more sure, more reliable than his own experience on the Mount of Transfiguration in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Moreover, while several English translations state that Peter, Peter's experience made the prophetic word more sure, that word made is not in the text. Simon Kistemacher, who agrees with Schreiner, is forced to admit, contrary to the view he's teaching, that the word made more certain is not an accurate translation. I quote him, simply put, the verb made is not in the Greek text. Well, if we accurately translate Peter's terminology and simply take what he says at face value, which is a very good practice, we arrive at a second approach rendered by the King James Version. And this is the one I think that for people who've been Christians for a while, this is the way we're used to thinking about the verse very helpfully, that we have a more sure word of prophecy, a word of prophecy more sure. That's actually what Peter writes. He is not saying that his experience confirms the prophetic word, although it did. We don't deny that it did. Our experience confirms the Bible. But that's not what he's saying. He says, in comparison, even to his own experience as an apostolic witness, we have something more reliable, more sure in the Bible, in the prophetic word. And of course, he's going to go on in verses 20 and 21 and argue the unique status of the prophetic word because it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. That makes it the possible, highest possible of all authorities, greater even than his personal experience with Jesus the word of God written through the prophets and then through the apostles. And I, and I will say in a very real way, when you read in the scriptures, the biblical testimony of the event he's describing, the Mount of Transfiguration, you have a more accurate guide than his subjective experience. Our Cornelius Van Til was very famous for saying that if you videotape the atoning death of Jesus, you would not understand the meaning of it. The Bible records the event and the interpretation of the events the authorized explanation, the authorized doctrine that goes with the text. The scripture is a more valid uh, authority, a source of truth than personal experience. Yes, even the apostles. Now, Peter's not denigrating the power of what he and the other apostles, the three of them, experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration. He just used that to refute this whole idea that he's making it up, that he's teaching myths and wives' tales. He says, no, he refutes that by saying, I, I'm an eyewitness of the return of Christ because it was with his eschatological glory that Jesus was decked on the Mount of Transfiguration. And yet, as he's dealing with the heresies, and Second Peter is an incredibly valuable book among other, about a lot of things, but certainly dealing with false teaching. 
He says, we can be certain of the gospel message of Jesus that he and the other apostles are teaching because it is the word of God. And here's the clincher, because as the word of God, it is certain. It is as it is because it is the word of God. Oh, it's confirmed, but it's because it's the word of God that it's trustworthy and true. Now, when he writes that the prophetic word is more sure even than his own experience, he is speaking of the reliability, the trustworthiness, the authoritative nature of Holy Scripture. And of course, the Bible speaks of this in many places. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is what? Sure. The test- Somebody says to you, the Bible never claims inerrancy. Take him to Psalm 19. By the way, it claims inerrancy when it claims to be the word of God because it is the word of God. And so on the transfiguration, it does confirm his teaching about the second coming, the doctrine he's defending. He does not argue that the prophetic word needed anything to confirm it. It is sure because it is God's word. And Jesus taught the same doctrine of scripture. It is entirely sure when he said in Luke 16, 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now, Since Peter presents the written word of God as more sure, even than his own experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, we should emphasize today that the Bible is a more reliable source of truth than any experiences that you or I may have. I'll put it this way. The Bible presents an objective revelation rather than subjective impressions. Now that, of course, cuts across the grain of the ethos of the culture we're living in. James Shattuck writes very rightly, for most people, nothing is more authoritative than personal experience. The problem is that our experiences and the so-called truths that we glean from them are not certain. And it's experience-based subjectivism in our time that's led to this relativism in which everything is true and therefore nothing really is true. You have your truth. I have my truth is another way of saying nothing is true. Shaddix warns Satan can create experiences and feelings. He can manipulate circumstances in our lives. So the objective constant of scripture must be placed on a higher plane of authority than any personal experience. Now, to assert the objectivity of the Bible, of the scriptures, does not deny that it needs to be rightly interpreted. Uh, That's an important topic for which, of course, the Bible itself provides the principles. One of the most important things you will learn in seminary is biblically sound methods for interpreting the Holy Scripture and practice in that. But the first essential point is that the Scriptures are objectively true because they have God as their origin. Throughout the New Testament, what what, what do the prophets say without fail? Not one of the prophets says, you know, I had what a conundrum I had, and I couldn't, I was up all night. About three in the morning, I had a flash of insight. Don't you don't have a flash of insights? I have in the shower, driving the car. I have flashes of insight. And, and I wanted to write it. So I do. I run down to my computer before I'm working on a sermon. And something comes to my mind. I run down to the computer dressed. And I, you know, and I put it on my computer. But not one of the prophets says that's what happened. Every one of them says the word of the Lord came to me. The, the testimony of the scriptures is the word of the Lord came to me. And likewise, throughout the New Testament, The apostles see the scriptures as deciding all arguments. They speak with definitive truth. Where the scripture speaks clearly, the debate ends. I've often said at our presbytery, if we were what we ought to be, and we are not collectively, 
then as soon as the scripture's clear teaching on the matter is, is given, we should end debate and there should be an unanimous vote. The scriptures, that's the apostles' view. It's Jesus' view. You err because you know not the scriptures, is what he said. And so the objective surety of scripture grounds our faith, our convictions regarding truth, to which our subjective experience must always be compared and critiqued. Oh, how exciting it would have been to be with Noah in the ark. Actually, probably very boring. Uh, what, what a thrill to have been with Moses in the Exodus. Terrifying. We have a more sure truth, even about those events, than the participants had through the word of God. Now, it's especially essential to realize this objective and more sure nature of the biblical teaching when it comes to the gospel message of Jesus and the matter of our own personal salvation. Someone may perform a religious, a religious ritual, and they subjectively, this happens all the time today, they, they do a prayer labyrinth, or, or they do some ritual, maybe it's a sacrament, and they say, I felt that I had peace with God. Okay, but do you have peace with God? The Bible will answer that question. What is Romans 5.1? Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. And it's those who have believed in Jesus Christ, confessing their sins, who have peace with God. The subjective experience of peace with God is uncertain. Well, as Peter continues, he notes that God's word through the prophets and apostles not only is sure, but secondly, it is sufficient for our needs. Verse, I'm going to read the whole verse. And we have the prophetic word made more sure. Actually, see, I put made in there. We have the prophetic word more sure, to which, I talk about a great understatement, to which you do well to pay attention as to a light shining in a dark place. If the Bible is a more sure word, even than what Peter experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration, oh, how earnestly we must pay attention to it. We must make it the message we believe for salvation. We must make this our daily guide for walking with God. Now, I mentioned already uh, verses 20 to 21, where he explains the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that it is God himself who speaks in Scripture. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But moreover, the Bible teaches that God has not only spoken in his word, but he has specifically appointed his word. He has pointedly empowered his word to save sinners by bringing them to faith. Uh, Paul said in Romans 10, 17, a verse that we should never forget, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so God's word is therefore the key means of spiritual life for his people. It is the primary means. It is the sufficient and necessary means for the regeneration of sinners to salvation. No wonder David celebrated in Psalm 19, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Now, Peter extols the value of Scripture by calling it a lamp shining in a dark place. Now, his word for dark place has the nuance of the squalor and gloom of a dungeon. It's this darkness in all that it means. Misery, fear, insecurity. And the Bible often refers to this world with the imagery of darkness, with its ignorance, its rebellion. 
And darkness is the realm of the misery of sin, where people are without hope and without God, strangers to the covenant of promise, Ephesians 2.12. And the darkness applies to the heart and mind of sinful men and women as well. Jesus said people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil, John 3, verse 19. And so God sent his word through the prophets and the apostles so that light would shine into the darkness of this world. What a thing it is for you to be called to preach the word of God and to be devoting these precious years. Oh, these are, don't, don't, don't stint these years of preparation. Seminary is the greatest time in your life in many ways, but it's so necessary to the years, Lord willing, of service that you have. Why? Because it's the ministry of the word. It's the light of God shining into the world. The imagery of light speaks for the revelation of truth so that people can see it. So it's going to happen to you over and over. You're going to stand up and you're going to exposit the scripture and people who were in ignorance, either of that message or of God itself, himself and of the way of truth and, and of, of Christ, they will be enlightened through the ministry of this word. Psalm 119, 105 has spoke the words that countless believers have found true. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Alexander Nisbet writes, this world is so dark a place that our own reason, the counsel or example of others will so often leave us comfortless to wander and fall in snares, except we look to the light of the word and it is shining in a dark place. Many of us have had the experience of driving on a night so dark, you can barely see the road. Don't you hate that? It, it makes you exhausted to drive that way. It's so dark, you can barely see the road. It's only the headlights that enable you to navigate safely. And you're, and you're leaning forward, intently looking at the places where the light is shining so that you know where to go. So it is for Christians. As we live in a world that is darkened by ignorance, danger, peril, sin, misery, as Peter writes, knowing that his readers are beset with false teachers, knowing, and this is very clear in this book, he knows he's, the reason he writes, he's going to die soon. He knows he's leaving. He, he's leaving them. He's going to die. And so what does he urge them? The value of God's word as the only guide that will see them safe to heaven and convey to us the truth of God and his love. Peter does notice that, I think it's somewhat pointedly, uh, Peter does not say, I'm going to have successors. There's going to be men occupying my office. We'll call them popes. No, no, isn't it striking? He does not say that. He's leaving. He's telling them what authority to go, the trust in, which alone must guide them. He makes them, there's no mention of, if, the, if Rome was right, he would say, well, God's providing apostolic succession. Listen to the pope. Frightening thought that is. It's not what he says at all. No, he, he urged us to hold the Bible in our hands and to make the written word of God by the prophets and the apostles our sole guide for life and eternity. Now, if Peter is right about God's word, then it's not enough for Christians to take the Bible as an authority. You know, it's a good resource set alongside other viable guides for faith and Christian living. No, this is where we have sola scriptura. We must hold the Bible as uniquely authoritative and sufficient for Christian faith and life. In Paul's version of, of the inspiration of Scripture, 2, Peter, 2 Timothy 3.16, he says the Spirit-inspired Bible, here's another great understatement, is profitable. Amen to that. It is possible, profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, 
for training and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, that's a pretty comprehensive statement. It says it's the spirit-inspired word is sufficient for all of that, to, to equip you, to, to leave you complete for every good work. If we take him seriously, the Bible is not only authoritative, valuable, it is sufficient. And let me work out three ways in which, in particular, it's important for you as you minister to hold to the sufficiency of God's word. And the first deals with evangelism. The word of God is sufficient for evangelism. Now, when we say sufficient, we don't mean that you shouldn't pray. We're not saying prayer is not valuable. Hospitality is valuable. But the me- it is the means appointed and operating in the way that God wants it to be. It is itself sufficient in the ministry of the Holy Spirit to convert. Peter wrote, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. What a statement that is. How is someone going to be born again? Always by the word of God. Always, one way or another, always by the word of God, because it is only by the word of God. I love Ezekiel 37. Poor Ezekiel. If he said to me, you know, Rick, who's the, who's the prophet you least want to be? I'm preaching Jeremiah right now, and I don't want to be Jeremiah. But I think Ezekiel, the whole laying on your side business, uh, it's terrible. Poor guy. I love that he negotiates with the Lord. He says, you're going to lie on your side 270 days, and you're going to use manure to cook your food. And Ezekiel goes, come on, can you cut me a little slack? Okay. We'll pretend it was manure. (laughs) But he finally graduates seminary. He gets his first call. And he's called to the First Presbyterian Church of the Valley of Dry Bones. You think your church is dead? His was decomposed. And there's this body that's just, it's just bleached bones lying there. I mean, it's, just, it's as dead as can be. It's just scattered bones. And what, what is he told? Prophesy, son of man. Prophesy. So he begins preaching. And then a wind is seen stirring up. The Holy Spirit, that's necessary, but the Holy Spirit attends the preaching of the word. And the bones start moving and they come together. Sinews form on them. This is what our ministries actually accomplish in the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And the word of God is sufficient. What a thing it is. I will tell you that I am a person who is banking my life's work on the proposition that if I will faithfully preach the word of God, yes, through the blessing of his Holy Spirit, which Christ does give, then he will save. He will build the church. He, he, the, he will build the, the you know, Christ says, I will build my church. Souls will be saved. Christians will be built up by the preaching of the word of God. And that is a true proposition. I think of Jesus believed that. I think of Jesus' early miracles. I think of particularly the synoptic miracle. He's in Capernaum and uh, there's a, he's in a synagogue. There's a man with a demon possessed. He casts out the demon. Then he goes to Simon Peter's mother-in-law and she's got a fever. He rebukes it. It's his word. He rebukes the fever, the emphasis on the word. Just, and then, they, then he heals some other people. And then word gets out. And it's, you know, it's just this descent of, of poor, broken souls for his healing. And Peter's thrilled about this. Peter's like, man, what a megatrist we're going to have. I'm not going to, you know, you lie awake at night going, am I going to be a failure? Are my kid's going to starve. I, I, I laid away. When I was in seminary, I laid awake thinking that way. And he's, oh, no, Peter's going, oh, this is great. We're not going to live in obscurity. We're going to have a mega church. He has the gift of healing. <laughs> and so Jesus, who spent the night praying, uh, Peter goes to him, Mark 1, go look at it. 
and says, where you been? I got him lined up, sir. I mean, I guess it's cracked to it. We're building a church over here. What does Jesus say? Mark 1.38, let us go to the other towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I've come. Jesus cares about people. He's infinitely compassionate, so he heals. But when that gets in the way of the ministry of the preaching of the word, don't let anything get in the way of the ministry of the preaching of the word of God, because it alone has power from God to give life to the dead. It has that power alone. Jesus centered his own ministry on preaching God's word. I would argue he the expository preaching of God's word. And the reason he did that was because he came to save sinners. If you want to save sinners, preach the word. God's word alone is sufficient to regenerate. So we, if we want sinners to be saved, we must preach the word. Second of all, the word of God is sufficient for Christian growth, for sanctification, for holiness. We think of the high priestly prayer. Jesus prayed, John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I love Psalm 1. It's not the first psalm for nothing. It's the gateway to biblical spirituality, together with Psalm 2. Uh, and we, we should all, my, our, my children know Psalm 1. Your children should know Psalm 1. It's the, it's the heart of the wisdom for biblical spirituality. Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scorners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, what's the result of that? What's the result of, of a devotion to the word of God? A believing, not just a merely scholarly, a believing devotion to the word of God. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. The word of God is sufficient for spiritual growth. I was converted at age 30. I was a proud, accomplished pagan. And I was converted on a Sunday night, uh, Hosea chapter three. So I go to church the next Sunday morning, aware I've been born again. And I'm pretty excited. I got a new big Bible with a back. This is a 1990. So you got a big Bible cover with a cross on it and a handle. And, uh, and he's preaching Romans. He's in chapter nine. <laughs> First sermon I hear as a Christian is not on predestination. Oh, no, no. Let's not make it easy. Reprobation. And from the, right from the beginning, I had to confront the fact this is the word of the Lord. And I was there. For, I was in grad school. For, I was converted right at the beginning of my grad school. So I was there two years. By the time I left that church, a good, it was a great church, preaching the word, uh, and Christian friends, study the Bible, reading Christian literature, my life was radically transformed. I was a military officer, and I was in grad school to go teach at West Point, and I grew up in the Army. These are my childhood friends. They've known me all my life, and I go back, to put my uniform back on. I get back in the Army. All my friends go, what has happened to your life? You're a completely different person. The word of God is what happened in the, in the Holy Spirit, the word of God. The greatest need of the church today is intimate acquaintance with and knowledge of God's word. Bible knowledge today is abysmal in our churches because we want big churches, therefore we tell stories and cry. Can I just make it that simple? You want to really, you want to, you want a number? If we don't find success numerically, it's a pet peeve of mine. If you say to me, and you're not going to say that, but people on the plane do, what do you do? I'm a, I'm a minister. I pastor a church. What's the first question they ask every time? How big is it? And I'm like, oh, I like people. I mean, we're, we're a pretty big church. But I mean, why'd you ask that first? If you want numbers, don't preach the word cry. Tell stories about your dog. And oh, even better, intimate details of your wife's emotional problems. Oh, that'll fill the church. People love that. You won't do anybody any good. 
preached the word, a patient, faithful, expository ministry of the word of God, and people will grow and God will build a real church through the ministry of the word. It is sufficient for sanctification and Christian growth. It's sufficient for guidance. Scripture is not going to give you the name of who to marry. What's his name in the Bible? It's, what's your first name? No, you're not getting married. Aren't you two getting married? You are married. Oh, sorry. I, I assume. What's your first name? See, his, see, his name is in the Bible. So did your, did your fiance go, Jonathan, looking for Jonathan? No. The Bible will not give you the name of your spouse, the city you should live in. It'll give you discernment. It'll give you wisdom. It'll give you a way of thinking to put your priorities in order. And you'll be able to make sound decisions. The Bible is so valuable for that. The Bible is sufficient. Well, let me conclude by pointing out that the word of God is also enduring. It's a, it is sure, it's sufficient, but it endures, verse 19, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He means until Christ returns. The Bible will endure in showing us God's truth. And Jesus said that, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, until the day dawns, uh, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, Peter says God's word will endure until the day dawns. And of course, that's the the age to come. Biblical eschatology is this present age and the age that's to come. And isn't it exciting that the Bible describes the, the, the age to come as the dawning of the new morning, the dawning of the eternal day and its light. Thomas Schreiner says the day of the Lord is a day of judgment and salvation when those who oppose the Lord will be punished and those who love him will be delivered. And so Peter's point is between now and the final judgment, Christians possess the word of God, which will safely guide us through every passage of life and all of history so that we arrive safely in heaven through faith in Jesus. If you are packing for the great journey of life on a trip that is going to eternity, the one resource you must not forget is your Bible. The medieval scholar Bede wrote, in the night of this world, so full of dark temptation, where there is hardly anyone who does not sin, what would become of us if we did not possess the lamp of the prophetic word? Now, we remember that the particular doctrine that Peter is defending from false teachers is the second coming of Christ. And it's perhaps in light of their denigration of the Lord's coming that he speaks of it as the day when the morning star rises in your heart. And here he takes up a familiar description of the Messiah in his end times glory prophesied in the Old Testament. Numbers 24, 17 foretells God raising up a royal figure in the latter days who will defeat the enemies of his people. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. Malachi 4.2 says the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. The song of Zechariah before Jesus' birth says that because of God's mercy, the sunrise shall visit from us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Luke 1.78-79. And by speaking of the morning star, Peter directs our hope to the return of our Lord, our Lord Jesus, and then God's blessings will all descend and all his promises will be fulfilled. Uh, The question is raised then is how does the morning star rise in our hearts? 
houses in our hearts. Christ's return is going to be physical in his coming glory. Well, the answer is provided by Jesus himself, who says in Revelation 2.20, of those who persevere in faith, I will give him the morning star. Uh, the light of Christ will blaze in glory for every eye to see when he returns, but it will especially be in the hearts of those who trusted him that his light will rise never to set again. The rising of Christ, the morning star, will bring the dawn of the everlasting day when God's people will finally know Jesus fully and our hearts will be filled with joy. Well, on that day, when you and I meet the Lord Jesus face to face, I confess on that day, our need for the prophetic word will have ceased. On the day when Jesus returns, we will no longer need our Bibles. We'll be in the eternal presence of our Lord. Richard Bauckham, I think, puts the matter with precision. He says, prophecy's function of illuminating the darkness of ignorance will be superseded when the full light of eschatological revelation floods the hearts of God's people. And it may indeed be that when Christ's people finally meet Jesus, we behold the fullness of his glory and his love, then maybe our Bibles will fall from our hands as no longer needed. But if that is so, we should note that the believers entering into glory will all have gotten there by having the Bible in their hands often opened, fervently believed, dearly loved. Well, the English Reformation was founded on the principle, this conviction taught by Peter, Sola Scriptura, that God's word is sure, sufficient, and enduring. And there's a remnant of that faith that stills in the rituals for the coronation of an English monarch. Part of the rituals for the, the crowning of a new king or queen of England has the moderator of the Church of Scotland come forward, and he holds in his hands an ornate Bible. And he places that into the hands of the new monarch, and he says these words. This book is the most valuable thing this world affords. These are the living oracles of God. Well, Jesus told a parable, I'll conclude with this, uh, to espouse this very view. The parable is about a rich man who died and was sent to hell. And he was called in hell. He was suffering in the terrible heat. And he called across the great chasm to Abraham. And he asked Abraham if he could send a poor man across uh, what he'd known. He'd not treated him well, but he'd known. If he could drop a drop of cool water on his tongue. Abraham said he could not do this. No one can pass from heaven into hell where the unbelieving man now suffered. Then I beg you, Luke 16, 27, I beg you, Father, to send to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Well, Abraham's answer provides an urgency to Peter's advice that we must pay attention to God's word. Abraham answers, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. God's word is sure, sufficient, and enduring, and God will send no other message. He will send no other message by which sinners can be saved, relieved of misery, escape the eternal judgment than that which is found in this book. This book sets forth the one Savior, Jesus Christ, and his righteousness, his sin-atoning work, his glorious resurrection, 
only the message from this book will save. And those who believe it, well, they will receive the morning star. If that's not an incentive to study hard, to labor in these days of seminary, the significance of the ministry when you're entering in your presbytery exams, that you would see that as a high and holy calling, that, that we should aspire to the highest of, of, of standards. This is the only word God has given or will give men to be saved. You are training here. I trust almost all of you, if not all of you, men, with a calling from God to preach that word. What a privilege it is. Consecrate your lives to the ministry of the word. It is God's sure, sufficient, and enduring word. Father, I pray your blessing on Greenville Seminary. Thank you so much for its faithfulness. I pray for these students, that you would equip them through your Holy Spirit, that as they are imbibing, that they would be nourished in their own faith, that they'd be growing spiritually while they're here. But Father, I know in many cases they're tired, they're working nights, they, they've been here a long time. Father, let, let us never forget both the, the responsibility and the incredible privilege. We would stand up in the midst of your church and we would open your, your word and we would proclaim it. Lord, cause us to consecrate ourselves wholly to that end. And then Lord, glorify yourself through your word. Save the lost. Build up your church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for tuning in to this production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, please visit gpts.edu.